Hi, everyone. This is Alicia Halliday, and this is the Autism Science Foundation Weekly Science Podcast. Now, good scientists know that sometimes you need a fresh pair of eyes to look at data in a new way. That only through collaborating with other scientists who have different skill sets as well as new technologies that it might be possible to find things that were not part of the research question and therefore not necessarily previously considered. It's my personal opinion that instead of collecting new samples for each new study, a lot can be learned by examining existing data. Unfortunately, when you study the brains of people with autism, you have to approach it this way because there are just flat out not enough resources to answer all the questions that scientists have. So that's exactly what Eric Morrow and his collaborator at Brown University did. Eric Morrow, his collaborator Matthew Schweed, and the Geshwin Lab at UCLA worked together to reanalyze data from multiple existing studies on how genes act and how they are in the brains of people with autism compared to those without autism. This included a study published in 2001, as well as another study published by the Geshwin Lab by Neil Roop Parkashak in 2015. Neil graciously presented some of his data on an Autism BrainNet webinar, which can be found on the Autism BrainNet website if anyone's interested in watching it again. In addition, there were several other data sets included. So two types of analysis were done by the Geshwin Lab, and these data were shared with Brown University. One is called GWAS, or Genome-Wide Association Studies. GWAS looks at different genes that are associated with a trait, anything from prostate cancer to autism and everything in between. The other technology used was RNA sequencing. Now this looks at the amount of RNA which reflects gene activity in a cell or cells. So using these two types of analyses together, ones that had already been done by the Geshwin lab, the Morrow lab could look at genes and their activity. But because Morrow and Schweed had different expertise than Geshwin and were actually asking different questions, they might uncover something that was novel. And they did find something novel. They discovered that genes related to mitochondria are significantly downregulated in autism brains relative to control. Now, the mitochondria is a part of the cell. It produces energy that the cell needs. Another important part of the cell is called the endoplasmic reticulum, which makes things the cell needs, it detoxifies, and it breaks down things in the cell that need to be removed or just flat out metabolized into something else. Why choose these areas of the cell to study and why mention them both in the same podcast? Well, for one, the mitochondria and the endoplasmic reticulum actually touch each other in the cell so that they can connect to each other functionally. And for another thing, they both control processes in the cell, whether it be metabolizing things or just monitoring sugar levels in the cell or producing an environment where the cell just collapses on itself called apoptosis. These are things regulated by the mitochondria and the endoplasmic reticulum. There's obviously a whole lot more of these organelles, and organelles are organs within the cell, so that's how granular we're getting. I'll do you a favor and save you the basic biology lesson. I'll just zip it and get to the final idea. Abnormalities related to mitochondria have been implicated in autism pathogenesis through several lines of evidence, such as overrepresentation of mitochondrial disease in patients and elevated biomarkers of metabolism like lactate and pyruvate, which are indicative of mitochondrial dysfunction. Further, genes for select electron transporting complexes have been shown to be lowly expressed in the cortex of children with autism. And to make this story even more interesting, Literally the same week, another group of investigators studying the brains of people with autism found evidence of increased stress of the endoplasmic reticulum stress signals. 
So Brown University was looking at the mitochondria, but a completely different group at University of Maryland was looking at the endoplasmic reticulum. Now, just these two things together don't necessarily present a totally clear picture. Two things could be going on. Mitochondrial dysfunction and increased stress of the cell is the cause of brain development gone wild in autism. Or mitochondrial function and increased stress of the cell is a consequence of this brain development gone wild. One of these studies does lean towards the first one, but it's probably too early to say that. Drugs and medications that are supposed to support mitochondrial dysfunction have not been wildly successful, so the jury is still out. What Morrow's study does, however, is take that extra step in addressing the chicken or the egg question. And they do this by looking at those mitochondrial genes in connection with genes that express the synapse or how the brain cells connect with each other. Now, researchers already know that genes that control synapse function, development, and ongoing maintenance make up a huge chunk of genes which confer susceptibility to autism. Of course, it's not all just these genes, but they're a huge part of them. Across all the data sets used, gene expression in the synaptic genes went up, so did gene expression in the mitochondria in the same tissue. So as synaptic gene expression goes up, mitochondrial gene expression goes up. If synaptic gene expression was low, so was mitochondrial gene expression. And this included those using the two technologies, GWAS and RNA sequencing. So this wasn't just an artifact of one of the different procedures. It means that the dysregulation of the mitochondrial pathway and how cells connect to each other are related in some coordinated way. Now, what I haven't mentioned so far is that there are many environmental factors that influence both mitochondrial function and the function of the endoplasmic reticulum. The evidence that the mitochondrial gene expression is connected to expression of synaptic genes opens the door to studying gene-environment interactions on a cellular level. Now, this might need to be done in an animal model first. So as long as we're talking about genetic variability, there's now some evidence in animal models that genetic variability directly leads to variability in the brain development and symptoms. In another study, researchers from all over the world, including the U.S., France, and Switzerland, combined their brain power and their resources to study the structure of the brain, which may explain behavior in two different types of mice carrying two different types of autism gene mutations. One had a mutation in a gene that causes Fragile X syndrome. Fragile X syndrome is characterized by intellectual disability and a high rate of autism. The other type of mouse had a mutation in a gene called contactin-associated protein, or catnap. When they looked at different areas of the brain, and when they developed in each of these types of mice, again, one had one type of mutation, another had another type of mutation, they found that these genes not only expressed at different times in development, but they expressed different areas of the brain. Why is this important? Previous research in actual people leads to the idea that variation in ASD risk genes affect brain development trajectory, but it hasn't actually been scientifically tested. Now it has. The researchers looked at three critical developmental periods between childhood and adulthood in mice. They found abnormal function and structural connectivity in both mouse models, but even more importantly and more to the question around genetic heterogeneity, the specific development of neurons and the anatomical pattern of brain regions depended on whether or not a mouse had a fragile X or a catnap mutation. 
For example, from 30 days after birth in fragile X mice, there was a lack of proper connectivity in sensory processing areas, indicating that developmental delay occurred early in childhood in fragile X. However, in catnap mice, the effect was slower. They developed gradually deviating connectivity patterns in places like the prefrontal and ventral striatal areas between adolescence and adulthood, suggesting that behaviors associated with this mutation become increasingly pronounced later in life. Now, each of these genes normally emerge or become active normally at different times in brain development, and therefore, the timing when they're normally functional seems to be responsible for the abnormal connectivity patterns and possibly behavioral symptoms. The takeaway from this is that you can't assume that every gene associated with autism has the same function and the same role in brain development. Although there are overlaps, they might actually act at different times or on different brain regions, which produce variability in behavior. And not only that, they can differ in their control of how circuits within the brain regions are formed. So multiples of these genes work together to affect cell-to-cell signaling and the way neurons form, but at different times and in different ways, resulting in a diversity of symptoms. And finally, a call for better genetic testing. Another syndrome associated with autism is called tuberous sclerosis. Tuberous sclerosis is a disorder characterized by lesions and benign tumors in multiple organ systems, and this includes the brain, the skin, the heart, eyes, kidneys, and lungs. The symptoms are pretty variable, but these individuals have a high rate of autism when the tubers are in the brain. But they certainly almost have some sort of symptom, everyone. This week, researchers in Kansas were able to identify several cases of tuberous sclerosis not through detection of a tumor or symptoms, but through whole genome sequencing. They ran whole genome sequencing on siblings of three people who had tuberous sclerosis. In these families, many had pathogenic variants of these TSC genes, including non-affected relatives with no medical concerns. They had limited behavioral features that would not raise concern for TSC had the sequencing not been done. There were a couple with epilepsy with no known tubers or tumors seen in the MRI. So they weren't originally diagnosed with TSC, and now they are, and their treatment plan has been changed. But let's focus on the ones with no features or no MRI findings. Were they protected in some way, and how? This kind of really does highlight the importance of not just genetic testing in individuals with a genetic syndrome, but also their families. I hope this podcast was helpful this week, and I'll talk to you next week.